Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome, everyone, and welcome to the Commonwealth of California. This is our early morning edition for all of you. Um, we're really lucky today to have three guests who are, are going to be just outstanding in helping us understand what's going on in our political discourse today. Uh, Steve Ketman, uh, Anthony Scaramucci, and Cynthia Tucker. Um, we obviously are coming to you by Zoom today. I find it interesting to think that back in 1903, when the Commonwealth Club started, the use of microphones wasn't even in our technological world. And today we're presenting uh, the Commonwealth Club over Zoom, um, hopefully a temporary condition, but certainly an effective way to keep the programming going. This programming is so valuable to informing our public discourse, and it only can occur if we get the philanthropic support of all of our listeners out there. So you will see a prompt during the program for how to donate to the club and texting the word donate to a phone number, and we really encourage you to do so. Um, we will have time for questions, and since we are operating over Zoom, the chat window is the way to submit them. Um, they will be redistributed to me, and I will try to get as many of the questions in as I can. Uh, we obviously are bringing you this program at a somewhat um, interesting time with the impeachment literally going on as we speak. Uh, but we're going to broaden our discussion far beyond uh, that current event. And the really the genesis of this discussion is a book that was put together by uh, Steve Ketman, um, he called the book, Now What? The Voters Have Spoken, Essays on Life After Trump. But what we're going to do today is talk about the book somewhat, but then go to the what I'll call Now What? Phase 2, which we might define as starting on January 6th, but continuing into the uh, foreseeable future. So what I'm going to do is start... Um, by asking Steve, who is the publisher of the book, to describe it to us a bit, uh, because it's a really important contribution, I think, to uh, freezing the uh, psychology of our state of mind at or around the election. And then we're going to move forward and discuss our psychology going forward. So, Steve, let me throw it to you and tell us about the book. Thanks, Roy, and thank you to Cynthia and Anthony for being here today, and thank you for the Commonwealth Club for this opportunity. The thing I'd really like to emphasize about this book is we're talking about politics. I'm sure we're going to talk about impeachment. We might even talk about Donald Trump, though I hope we get to talk more about Joe Biden. But these essays, the 38 essays in this book, are personal essays. That was the idea. And to talk about politics is also to talk about the personal you know, I uh, I just uh, am involved in a book on impeachment. I follow it closely. But so much of that discussion ends up uh, like a, a dog chasing its tail. Uh, reporters telling us they know the vote on uh, whether to convict Donald Trump in the impeachment hearing, whether it's a preordained or not. Well, spoiler alert, they don't know. <laughs> They're guessing. And so much of that talk all just fades to nothing. So um, Roy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak for a few minutes here. I hope that's okay, because I want to kind of cut to the, the heart of what I see the book as being about. It is personal essays, and I'll read 
Um, even though Cynthia is one of three Pulitzer Prize winners in the collection, we have a, a great lineup of 38 people. Anthony Scaramucci, from, from Anthony Scaramucci to Al Sharpton, as we like to say sometimes, with uh, Rosanna Arquette, Dusty Baker, Sandy Alderson, a uh, protege of Roy's back in the day. Um, so it's a wide variety of people, but these are personal essays. How do we talk about politics? Um, and let me read one paragraph, and then I'll, I'll, I'll expand on the thought. So here's from my introduction to the book. The essays convey how so many of us felt as the end of the Trump presidency neared, what we thought, what we saw, and what we did. The hope is that in putting out these glimpses so quickly, giving them an immediacy unusual in book publishing, we can help in the mourning for all that has been lost, help in the healing of ourselves and of our country, and help in the pained effort like moving limbs that have gone numb from inactivity to give new life to our democracy. We stared into the abyss, tottered on the edge, and a record-setting surge of voting and activism delivered us from the very real threat of plunging into autocracy. We have to celebrate that deliverance and remember it, like Luke blowing up the Death Star. We also have to keep searching for answers. And in that spirit, you know, Roy talks about phase one and phase two of now what. Um, I'm still searching for answers. And I was just thinking about this. What I point to is, is three qualities. We make it complicated. It's not that complicated. Humanity, courage, and passion. Humanity, courage, and passion. And if we could have a little bit more of those things in the public discussion, in the conversations we have with people, we'd be a lot better off. I want to give an example of two friends of mine. One I got to be a friend with through this book, Denver Riggleman, was a, when he wrote his essay in the book, which I highly recommend, he was a, a Republican congressman from the state of Virginia. This man runs a whiskey distillery with his wife in Virginia near Charlottesville. And he performed a gay marriage and for that was basically thrown out of the leadership of the – he was not part of the House leadership, but uh, the Freedom Caucus, everyone, he became uh, persona non grata. He then went on to, on the House floor, speak out against QAnon. And this man has had his life turned upside down. He, his own mother has told, called him a traitor to his country. Denver and I speak every day. He's going to have a, his own book coming out. But he has shown humanity, courage, and passion. Passion for democracy. Yes, we need an, uh, a reckoning. I believe we need a truth commission. But we also need to focus on personal qualities. So this might feel like a little bit of a digression, but I want to talk about a conversation I had six days ago with a friend of mine who um, I wanted to contribute to the book. And I'm, he had a lot to say, but unfortunately, he worked for ESPN, and uh, he's not allowed to talk about politics. We were discussing Anthony Scaramucci. Um, this is my friend, Pedro Gomez. And we were talking about Anthony and how, again, you can say what you want about Anthony. He helped Donald Trump. Some of us find that uh, offensive. But Anthony, uh, you know, worked very hard against the reelection of Donald Trump. And Pedro and I were talking about it. We were talking about how do they remember you later? This is the conversation I had with Pedro. What will they remember you for? Humanity, courage, and passion are qualities that Anthony has shown. I think we can all agree. 
And uh, Pedro, of course, showed those, those qualities. And um, I won't go on long, but I'll talk briefly. In 1999, Pedro, who was, born, who was conceived in Cuba, was, uh, and then his mother and father flew to Havana when his mother was eight months pregnant. He, um, he was a sports writer, but he was in Havana for a game. Uh, again, Sandy Alderson arranged a game between the Orioles and the Cuban national team. Very big deal, uh, also in U.S.-Cuba relations. And uh, Pedro was there, uh, went to the neighborhood where his family had lived, and they recognized him. He, they'd left in 1962, and they recognized him. Well, among the things Pedro did while he was there was to write an open letter to Bill Clinton calling for the end of the economic embargo of Cuba. For a Miami Cuban to do that, uh, you know, it's like Denver Riggleman. Pedro lost friends over that. But he showed, he showed courage. So in the baseball world, there's been an outpouring. We lost Pedro on Sunday. Um, and I wanted to just honor him as well. But it's that heart, always speaking with passion, speaking um, what, you, what you stand for, knowing what you stand for, and not being afraid to talk about that, even when it's a difficult situation, are qualities that I would point to in, in Anthony and Pedro, uh, Cynthia, certainly for a lot of years. Um, but it, it's on the level of values that I believe this essay collection really has importance. I know we'll move on to topical matters, but that's the way I wanted to set it up. If we can't talk as people to each other as people, then we can't get anywhere. And by the way, I'm not just talking about me trying to talk to a QAnon supporter or someone believes that Joe Biden uh, didn't really win. Uh, I'm talking even about subtle gradations of worldview where in the last four years, it's even people who know they're like, they're all Democrats. They all voted for, you know, Joe Biden. They still don't want to talk politics because it's become so toxic, so difficult. It becomes easier. And of course, we're all in our, our uh, shells because of COVID. It, It becomes so much easier not to talk. So for example, last week when Anthony and uh, Mary Curtis were on a, another event we did, and it got a little edgy at one point. Uh, and, you know, I wasn't sure where it would go. But by the end, uh, you know, it was like they almost had a hug, uh, you know, via Zoom. And I felt great about that because that in microcosm is what I hope this book can help accomplish. So thank you for letting me speak about my friend Pedro. Uh, and I'll kick it back to you, Roy. Thank you, Steve. Yes, and I agree we will go to topics, but underlying all of these topics are the concepts that you put forth. And I would probably add the word empathy to your list, but that maybe um, is an embellishment. The uh, it's a per- Actually, what you said is a perfect lead-in to um, Cynthia, because Cynthia, I, well, let me, let me lay a foundation for this. Many of the essays in the book are basically people waking up from what they perceived as a nightmare and describing the feelings of euphoria on uh, November 7th when the election was called. Um, some, like Anthony's, was a very um, interesting insight into a, a human story about uh, Donald Trump. Um, But there was a third and very important category of people warning 
that just because the election had been resolved doesn't mean that the issues that led us to experiencing those four years were uh, suddenly expunged from our uh, culture. And so, Cynthia, I would turn it to you and ask you to summarize for us um, and tie Al Sharpton's essay in as well, because he, he addresses the same point about the concern that you had um, thinking about how we go forward from that November 7th date. Well, Roy, when Steve contacted me and asked me to make a contribution, I warned him that my take was somewhat pessimistic, that while most of my friends, many of the people I knew were celebrating, our long national nightmare is over, I wasn't so sure because I've always struggled with the number of people who supported Donald Trump. And let's remember that he got more votes the second time he ran than he did the first time. So I wrote in my essay that Donald Trump lost, but Trumpism is still with us. And I think you're seeing it play out every day in our politics. You're seeing it play out in our personal relationships. Steve just made reference to the fact that it's very difficult to discuss politics, well, there's a good reason for that. Families have been torn apart. And um, I struggle, quite frankly, I have a 12-year-old daughter. I struggle with the kind of country that she will inherit as an adult. Um, I have college-age nieces, both are seniors in college, very bright, thoughtful young women uh, who voted, of course, voted for Joe Biden, but what kind of country will they inherit? One of the things that I frequently talk about is that I came of age when the civil rights movement had changed the country profoundly in marvelously wonderful ways. So it was easy for me to believe in the quote that Martin Luther King used so frequently, the moral arc of the universe bends long, but it bends toward justice. These days, I'm much more skeptical about that. Uh, when we have so many Americans who seem committed to another vision, um, trampling democracy is just fine with them as long as they get the result that they want. Uh, believing outrageous lies is fine with them. And quite frankly, so many of them seem unfazed by the deaths of more than 400,000 Americans from COVID. So I'm troubled by all of that. And I struggle with how we move forward. Yes. Am I relieved Joe Biden won? Absolutely. Do I believe he's the right man for the moment? Absolutely. Joe Biden is not, despite the way he was uh, painted by his opponent during the election. He's not a socialist. He's a moderate. He believes in reaching across the aisle. He really believes in the unity that um, he talked about during the campaign. 
I am hoping he can move us in that direction. Uh, but I am worried about the future of my country. I really am. Could you comment a bit on the uh, what Al Sharpton's comments were? He, he had, I think, a very interesting point that ties into what you said. Yes. Reverend Al wrote about Joe Biden, about uh, knowing Joe Biden, working with Joe Biden over many, many years, and what a decent man he is. And he talked about the fact that Biden has been tested and shaped by the pain and tragedy in his own personal life. And um, you talked about, Roy, uh, empathy. Steve talked about passion. I suppose I would have used the word compassion in addition to passion. Empathy and compassion are very similar traits. And Joe Biden has those in spades. And Sharpton talks about the fact that he is a man for this moment. Yeah, which is something that I think has been puzzlingly missing from our uh, national policy in the last uh, four years. Uh, I use the incarceration of children at the border as just an example of that. Anthony, that brings me to a question that maybe you could lay a foundation for us in moving forward. And because many of the behaviors that we see now, the intolerance, the the anti-intellectual reverence, the dislike of elites, et cetera, um, existed long before Trump came on the scene. But in my words, uh, somehow the Trump administration normalized and allowed people to openly manifest a lot of these behaviors. Um, what is, in your judgment, because you were, the, you were close to this for a while, what was the power that allowed this uh, catalyzation of so many behaviors that we didn't realize existed? Look, I don't, I don't want to dramatize it. I mean, he's nuts. There's something psychologically wrong with him and a result of which he got power and the manifestation of his nuttiness uh, was like a ripple effect through a lot of people. And so we all have heard the single man theory of history or the single woman theory of history. I think there's also a group theory of history, and I'll give you two examples. There was a great group of people that came together and formed the foundational principles of our constitution. They left the original sin of slavery in it. So I'm not saying that they were perfect. They were obviously very flawed, but they were trying to set up the foundational principles for a republic with appropriate checks and balances that would broaden freedom. And at least it started a imperfect union, but it led to great human progress if you study global history. Uh, Flip side of that, there was a very bad group of people in the 1930s that hijacked a sovereign nation. It's a bad group theory. became the National Socialist Party in Germany. Uh, They wrecked that nation and they murdered uh, tens of millions of people. Uh, And what happens is you have a group of people that are in the middle that see themselves as good people, but they're generally apathetic. And so it's like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, bad people can do things if good people remain inactive or don't rebuke their actions. So 
Donald Trump is crazy. You don't have to be a psychiatrist to say that he's crazy. Everyone knows the Goldwater thing and the blocking of clinical psychology evaluating him because they haven't met him. But uh, some of us may remember when Lawrence Taylor uh, bypassed the left tackle and took out Joe Theismann and cracked his leg. You didn't have to be an orthopedic surgeon to know that Joe Theismann broke his leg on that play. And so prima facie, there's something wrong with President Trump, and it permeated. And the travesty of it is that a lot of people conformed their behavior to him. Uh, and by the way, my myself included, I I supported him. Um, and I'm going to explain to you why I supported him. You may not like what I'm going to say, but you have to hear it because if you want, you got two choices. You could carve out 74 million people and float them into the Atlantic Ocean. If you think that's a solution, we could do that. Or you can hear what I'm about to say, and then we can try to build a bridge to those people and see if we can walk them back into our society and normalize as many of them as possible. Those, those are our choices. But I will tell you that my family of origin moved me to believe certain things about Donald Trump that were not true. And I'll just be very brief. I landed in Albuquerque, New Mexico. There were 9,000 people. It was March of 2016. And I crossed the security perimeter out of my intellectual curiosity to meet those people. I took my Secret Service pin off and I started to talk to those people. And then it dawned on me that I was talking to my dad. Um, those were people that were blue collar. They were uneducated. Uh, my father uh, uh, was born in 1935. Uh, when he went to work as a crane operator uh, in the early 60s, he had a very high post-World War II middle-class blue collar wage, but it was an hourly wage. But he was able to put his kids into a reasonably good public school system and we lived in a single family, albeit small house. But I would never dishonor my dad by telling you I grew up poor. I did not. We were decidedly in the middle class. But those people I met in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, they were not. They had the same skill set as my father. Many of them were eager to work. Uh, and we through, and again, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just making an economic observation. We transformed a group of blue-collar Americans from aspirational working class families like my father to desperational working class families 35 years later. Now, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm just making the observation. And so I really did think, and you could call me stupid. You can say whatever you want about me. And there's a lot of hindsight now because of the more aberrant behavior over the last two years. But I really thought, okay, we need a policy solution for these people the political establishment has left a vacuum of advocacy for these people for three decades. They were tied to Lyndon Johnson and their grandparents were tied to Franklin Roosevelt, but they're tied to nobody today. And so we have to figure this out. And, and, and listen, when I eventually broke from Donald Trump, it was, uh, it came with death threats. It came with threats of physical violence. I'm a former White House person, even though I was there for 11 days, I have an FBI agent assigned to me. I had to turn over legitimate death threats to myself and my family. I had police officers stationed outside my house on many nights. And I've had people, uh, you know, interviewed by the FBI, and some of which were charged with physical threat of violence to my safety. And so that, and that's all for me, just speaking my mind 
and explaining and exercising my First Amendment right of the systemic danger of Donald Trump. So, you know, I, you know, I love these uh, left-leaning media hosts. They want to call me an opportunist. Okay, well, opportunism doesn't go in that direction. Opportunism doesn't say, hey, this is completely wrong. Now, let me put my family and myself in personal safety risk to speak out against this uh, disgrace of a person. So, so we're here now, but you still have that problem. You still have a separation in our society between elites and people that are really economically desperate and are struggling. And they're all colors and they're part of the beautiful mosaic of America, but we need policies to solve their dilemma. If you don't get those policies, there will be more social unrest. Let me, let me um, disagree with Anthony here. First of all, uh, Anthony, I want to say how much I appreciate the fact that you did come forward and, and change your mind and you were very public about what you had observed up close in working closely with Donald Trump and you worked very hard to get him out of office. But I think the premise of your support in the beginning was flawed. You know, after Donald Trump was elected, surprising all pundits, including myself, in 2016, most journalists went out of their way to learn more about the white working class. They were absolutely persuaded that what had elected Trump was working class economic anxiety. I never believed that. And now there have been so many studies by political scientists that show that most Trump supporters are doing okay financially. Not wealthy necessarily, but doing okay. The simple fact of the matter is these are people who are troubled by demographic and cultural change. They are troubled by seeing a black and Asian, uh, South Asian woman as vice president of the United States. They are troubled by gay marriage, uh, the congressman that Steve talked about earlier. They are troubled that whites are becoming a smaller percentage of the American population. I would love to be able to reach out to those folks, but I don't know what to say to voters who are troubled by the fact that my daughter may one day be a major political figure in the United States. I don't know, I don't know how to respond to that. Cynthia, you actually had a word in your essay I thought was powerful, white lash. Is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. Um, from the moment that Trump started, well, actually, remember that Donald Trump came onto the national political stage as a prominent supporter of birtherism, this notion that uh, Barack Obama was an illegitimate president of the United States because he wasn't really born here. How did he run his first campaign? Uh, building a wall, uh, talking about banning Muslims from the country, 
and talking about Mexicans as criminals, drug dealers and, and rapists. Yes, he also talked about how bad trade deals were. He promised that he would return uh, manufacturing to the United States. He did very little in terms of returning manufacturing, but he did a lot in terms of showing his hostility to immigrants and his um, cozying up to white supremacists. So, yes, I saw the election of Donald Trump as white lash, a response to the first black president of the United States. So, so can I can I respond to that, Roy? Sure. So the first time I heard that term, I think Van Jones actually used it uh, on CNN. So I did a little bit of research. Uh, there's a book uh, by Jill Lepore called These Truths, which won a National Book Award a few years ago. She's a uh, historian. She actually went to my alma mater, Tufts University. And I would encourage people to read that book because it will support what Cynthia is saying. At every moment where the African-American community advanced and had some level of progress, they were met with a white lash of violence. They were met with lynchings, the KKK, hangings, you can go back through the 400 years at any moment in time, particularly right after the Reconstruction, um, there was significant violence and significant economic suppression of the African-American community. It happened again in the 20s. Some of you may or may not remember Sacco Vanzetti, but they were Italian-Americans that were hung in Louisiana. Uh, from, you know, Teddy Roosevelt in 1904 my grandfather never liked him because he signed immigration. He signed legislation that treated Italian-Americans as non-Caucasian when they entered through Ellis Island. And Sacco and Vanzetti, obviously, if you know that case, they were unfairly prosecuted. And so whether we like it or not, the history of the United States is loaded with this sort of nativism and, and loaded, frankly, with white lash. And so, you know, there's more of it coming. And so I, I do agree with and I accept what Cynthia is saying. But I'm also telling you that he won by a very narrow margin. Remember, he only won by 43,000 votes in four states in 2016 and obviously lost the popular vote. Um, and the people that I'm describing, uh, they were immovable, Cynthia. I can tell you that when I broke from Trump, I went into white ethnic areas. Some of it was economic desperation. Some of it is exactly what you were saying, white lash. And uh, they weren't moving from Trump. Uh, Trump could have shot people on Fifth Avenue and they were gonna vote for him no matter what. And the only way to really defeat him, and Rick Wilson and I had this conversation, was to go into the inner cities and to get voter registration up and to push people away from their political indifference and their political apathy towards doing something, you know, progressive for the society. So I agree with you, but I'm saying there is also, in my opinion, if there's an algebraic equation for this disaster, maybe your proration and your weighting of white lash is higher than the economic desperation that I'm describing. But I do think it is part of that algebraic equation that led us to where we are. 
Well, Anthony, you um, make my job very easy because you set up uh, the question that Steve so well posited at the very beginning, because we want to move forward in our thinking here. And I think what I'm hearing is a consensus that there's going to have to be a dialogue that can bridge this gap between people who only, you know, live in their separate bubbles. Uh, and I, so I, I put to you the general question, all of you are in journalism. Um, how do we create uh, or restore some form of dialogue uh, not between people who agree with each other, but people who don't agree with each other. Uh, and I'm going to start with the with the media, because we've ended up with, I mean, go back, I'm interrupting myself here, but go back to the Vietnam War. If you wanted to form a news judgment about the Vietnam War, you generally watch Walter Cronkite, and that was pretty much it. Today, you choose your television station depending on which one comes closest to confirming your preconceptions. And I'm as guilty of it as anybody, and I bet everybody listening to this is guilty of that. Um, what, how The media has evolved into this, but so I'm going to ask any and all of you to come up with a, a, a way that we can address this because without developing discourse we're just going to continue to foment each other's uh, concerns and reinforce each other's opinions i'd like to answer this one first if i may is that all right Roy? oh yeah okay um what i would point to is like uh we've been talking for this book and dialogue about dialogue gets old really fast right and right. there isn't there aren't a lot of ways to get people talking and I think what needs to happen is what we're talking about needs to change. And the way that that happens is by government in Washington actually taking action that benefits people and that moves the country forward. I don't think enough has been written or understood about part of the Republican project and the Trumpist project was to essentially disable government and not even fill jobs, uh, to, to put incompetent people into jobs, to put people, for example, to head government agencies when they're against everything that government agency is supposed to do. And you turn the whole thing into a joke where nothing happens. A, there's such a thing as a rudderless ship, but if a ship isn't moving forward, the rudder doesn't matter anyway. It's only when you set a course and you move through the water that you can chart a course. The, the Washington media is busy, uh, you know, talking about how's Joe Biden. Uh, well, I, I mentioned on Inauguration Day, uh, as Joe Biden was walking down the street toward the White House, ready to go in as president for the first time. And some CNN reporter was yelling at him, can you unite the country, Mr. President? And this is supposed to be uh, a tough journalism when it's ridiculous. It's, it's a farcical question. There, there is no, quote unquote, uniting the country. What there is, is enacting a number of, you know, executive orders, legislation, get, uh, fighting the pandemic, showing people that a lot of these conversations about left versus right, liberal versus conservative are illusory, essentially. A, a large percentage of the American people support 
what the Biden administration is trying to do. I don't care about labels. I care about, are you getting to work and actually getting something done? And I think that's what people care about. So if the media would stop, in, in, it's, it's uh, I always called the Trump the uh, auto, what is it, auto, autocorrect, when you're like trying to type something, and, and, and they take gibberish and turn it into a coherent idea. And then the media does this all the time. Joe Biden just said this. Well, what he meant was, no, and, and they get wrong what he meant. So what we need is less in, in, interference or inference from Washington media. And the way to do that is not to have high-minded discussions. It's to um, for government to do things that, that impact people and show that government can work for them. I know Bill Clinton is not often cited uh, in today's, um, you know, now. But one thing that the Bill Clinton administration tried to do, whether he was being impeached, whatever was happening, is they just they tried to get things done on a daily basis that sometimes it was incremental. And some of those things did not work out well, um, you know, the, the infamously um, leading to, you know, incarceration of black people, et cetera. But the fact was they were acting, they were doing things, they had energetic, dynamic people in jobs. And I think that is really the story of, back to my ship metaphor, of getting it moving forward in some direction. Because what we had before was a reality TV show where we spent all our time arguing about what we should argue about. So that, that would be my take. And I'd be very interested to hear Anthony and Cynthia comment on it. Well, I, I actually... Uh, very much agree with what Steve just said. I think that polls show that the uh, vast majority of Americans support Biden's proposals for uh, fighting the coronavirus, getting the vaccine moving, and also economic aid for people who are hurting. So uh, I think just showing people uh what we have in common in terms of our needs um, is a very important step in the right direction. Um, I would uh, suggest a couple of more things. I teach at the University of South Alabama, and one of the things I spend more time than you might think on is teaching my students what a legitimate source of information is. They have grown up in a social media age. Sean, Sean Hannity's a source of legitimate information. Yeah, where I have to explain <laughs> that Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, and quite frankly, some of the talkers on the left are not the best sources of information. Um, what is the difference between news and opinion? So I, I would urge all of you who have young folk uh, that you have access to, to model that for them, help them to understand that, uh, because I think that that is also important. Anthony, you got a comment? I'll, I'll be brief, but I'll say three things. I would encourage everybody to read my friend Stuart Stevens' book, It Was All a Lie, uh, because, because I think it's very, very factual what, what he is saying about the Republican strategy. And the Republicans decided that 
as long as there were more whites than blacks or more whites than browns, they were going to hold the majority. And then when that flipped over, they were going to exercise the tyranny of the minority. And they were going to figure out a way to do that. Operation Red Map being one of those things where they flooded the zone and produced all these Republican majorities at the state level, which then made it very easy for them to gerrymander and and push things around so that they could take advantage of the constitutions. Remember, one, one inherent point in the constitution is to protect the minority. That's why Rhode Island has the same number of senators as, as California, and the Republicans used that to their advantage. And one of the things they did was the the vetoing of the fairness doctrine that Ronald Reagan did in the 1980s, which led to the rise of Rush Limbaugh. So the very, very bad news, if we're just going to be open and honest about everything that's going on in our society, is uh, Cynthia is correct. The demographics are turning against white people. And there's a very, very large group of white people that are angry about that. They don't want, and people are going to be offended by what I'm saying, but I'm saying it for dramatic effect. So please just listen to me. They're offended by the latte drinking hordes of transvestites that are brown and black that are coming up over the transom to take over their government. You see that? And I said it that way for a reason, because you need to understand how these people think. And so you're not going to get 20 to 25% of these people. Very, very bad news. You can have 100 seminars like this. You can smoke peace pipes with them. You're not getting them. What we have to do, and the reason why I'm so supportive of this trial going on right now, which will likely lead to an acquittal, is the display of the facts. You know, Chris Cuomo said to me last night on his show, well, 80% of the Republicans are supporting this. I said, okay, but the registration for the Republican Party is down to 30% of the Americans. So 80% of 30 is 24%. And my job is to get that to 14 and my job is to get it to 10. And and so we're going to break up the Republican Party. I'm part of a movement with uh, Stuart Stevens and a very large group of people where 8 to 10, 12% of that party is going to splinter to liquidate that radical extremism that you saw represented on January 6th. But you can smoke as many peace pipes as you want. You're not going to reach those people. Uh, and, and that's just the facts. Our goal is to p- try to reach their children and to reach their grandchildren. And by the way, you know, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we can liquidate that stupidity and that ignorance. But we've had 400 years of it. So it's not like you're going to liquidate it tomorrow. It's not going to happen. Can I just comment, by the way, on the phrasing uh, Anthony just used? Because he also uses that in his essay, latte drinking. Uh, black and brown transvestites. I had never thought of the culture war and cultural fears in quite that colorful, if I may use that terminology, a way, Anthony. Um, so I had to pause over that a moment and just think about it. But But I thought it worked because it made the point you were trying to make. And and by the way, I'm saying that dramatically and perhaps somewhat politically incorrectly, Cynthia, to provoke. I want people to wake up to what what is going on so that they, they don't allow their sensitivity or their sensory adaptation to be offended. They have to look at it for what it is so that we can treat the disease, if you will. 
I was just going to mention one of the essays in the collection is from Dusty Baker, who's a baseball manager, but a very wise man. And uh, he, a lot of people remember a moment when his young son almost got run over in the middle of a game, uh, Darren Baker. Darren's at UC Berkeley now where I went to school and, uh, you know, is uh, going to graduate soon. But Dusty's essay is called Darren's Generation because uh, both Cynthia and Anthony are making this point. But I absolutely agree that uh, so much of what we need to do is to take a longer view. And to, to, Dusty argues that it's, it's, we're not going <laughs> to fix this. We're not going to solve it. We're not even going to be able to move the needle in some ways. But Dusty, for one, is hopeful that Darren's generation understands that this is on them and that they need to, uh, to learn, to keep their eyes open and, and learn from what's going on. Cynthia, I completely agree that media literacy uh, is, is something that we all need to find ways. Um, I've talked to people through this, this Now What project about you know, trying to get involved and going out and talking to young people. But how can you, how can you really explain the difference between you know, a news column and an opinion column when if you're a regular reader of the New York Times or the Washington Post, you know, they haven't quite figured out the distinction. Well, good point. <laughs> you know, so it's not easy, but definitely taking a long view makes a long a lot of sense to me. Uh, Anthony, you mentioned uh, um, where the Republican Party is going, and I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit because I think that's uh, going to be important. It's not that the Democrats are monolithic, but right now they're behaving relatively monolithically. Um, the uh, Republicans have a bit of a bigger challenge on their hands. I'll, I'll call it the Liz Cheney versus Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, syndrome. How do you see that developing? Well, my hope is that people like Kinsinger and Liz Cheney and my good friend Mitt Romney win that battle. Uh, but I am pessimistic about that because you have so much political expediency in that party. And you have these political consultants that told Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, take the Trumpist lane. And what you're going to do is you're going to object. It'll be a mild objection and you'll look like a star to all of the Trumpist base come 2024. Of course, that backfired on those two lunatics. And, and what's happening in our society now, and I hate to say this with such levels of cynicism, but I did get 11, an 11-day 11 PhD in Washington nonsense, yeah. okay? And so I know what these people are really like now, and what they're really like is my power and the preservation of my power and what is in it for me personally is actually more important than the country. And I'm not here to serve anybody. They call it public service but I'm not really here to serve anybody. I'm here to rule over people. And so you have a very large group of those people in the Republican Party. I can't speak for the Democratic Party. I'm sure human nature being what it is, there are people like that in the Democratic Party. But here's why I am so optimistic, okay? I'm optimistic because Donald Trump exposed all of them. All of those Bible quotes that Marco Rubio puts out on his Twitter feed are an absolute joke. I mean, the guy is a coward. He's an intellectual lightweight and he's miserable. And I, you know, we got to get rid of people like him. Okay. And so we're not going to be able to do that because there's more of them in that party 
than there are of Stu Stevens's or Mitt Romney's. So, so the good news, though, is because of this exposure, what I predict will happen is that the party gets liquidated. Now, there's a there's a chance here that Mitch McConnell, who signaled this morning that he's undecided on his vote, there's a chance here that you could get leadership. But I doubt it. And I'll leave you with a thought uh, that should make you laugh a little. I'm with Kevin McCarthy, a fellow Californian, uh, seven years ago, and I'm at some congressional luncheon cafe up on the hill. And he's saying to me in gr- with great sanctimony and the saccharine tones that, you know, Anthony, we only have thermostats up here. Uh, and they sense the weather and then they report the weather back to people. But, you know, I'm sorry, thermometers. But we need thermostats. And thermostats are they set the coordinates on the wall and they bring the temperature of the country. They lead people. They show people the way. But we only have thermometers up here. Is Kevin McCarthy a thermometer or what? I mean, the guy is a disgusting uh, one-way selfish. He's probably, you know, to quote Trump, he probably does have a low IQ because there's no way you could operate the way he's operating if you if you have a high IQ. So so the bad news is we're going to go into a nuclear winter in the Republican Party. That's not going to be good for Democrats because what we've learned in our system, you need a two-party system. You need a check and balance of each other because you've got a radical extremist on the left that will be able to get more power as the Republican Party is being liquidated. So, you know, but we're going to liquidate that party. There, there's seven to 10 percent of the people that are in Romney's camp that will say, OK, no problem. We have to form a new party. This way we can prevent the Republican Party, the party that we used to be members of, from destroying our democracy. Okay, you know, and, and, you know, Cynthia is right about this. You have a group of people in this party. Hey, the white man or the white woman, they're not going to rule anymore. OK, well, let's get, a, get let's get rid of the democracy, storm the Capitol. And so okay. I might just let you know, we can't let that happen. You know, you're talking about your children or Dusty Baker's children or his grandchildren. How could we let that happen? How could good men and women on our society not call that out for what it is, despite the death threats and allow that to happen? Okay, you know, all of us on this panel right here before me, we may not agree with each other on everything, but I got to tell you something. I guarantee every one of us loves the country. Every one of us wants it to be a democracy. Isn't that the higher order of principle? Let's debate the policy later. We can have an argument over taxation and securities regulation and, you know, the minimum wage later. We got to save the democracy. Now, that's the number one thing that we have to do together. And for this reason, I'm optimistic because Donald Trump is the great unifier. He happens to be unifying all of us against him. And that's 20 percent of those people that are nut jobs. And we and, and that's my point. Yeah. And let me throw out a proposition uh, following on your speculation that we could all agree on a lot. And that is that we are as a country not as divided as we're told we are that it starts to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, let's say there's 25% on the left and 25% on the right who do not want to accommodate uh, uh, any kind of a consensus on, on policy, but that leaves 50% in the middle. And right now, 
that statistic seems to ignore. I'd, I'd be curious your thoughts on whether maybe we're being sold more uh, dissension and divisiveness than is really the case if we could put people in the same room. Well, I think that uh, we all know that um, there are lots of of media outlets that capitalize on dissension. Exactly. Um, so uh, there is some amplification of the differences among us. Uh, but let me throw out something that I keep reading in the newspapers, and it sounds right to me, but Anthony probably knows this better than I. There are a lot of thoughtful Republican office holders in the House, in the Senate, who know better than the nonsense that they are going along with. Um, they, uh, in private, would agree on a lot of the principles that I support, but they lack courage. So they won't say out loud in public that they agree with those things. They won't vote in a way that shows that they support those things. So I think they need to find the courage uh, to publicly show the principles that they stand on, if in fact they stand on those principles. Yeah, and courage means not getting primaried every two years. Uh, it doesn't or being mean willing to lose, lose that election. election. Courage, courage is like, hey, you know what? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm ready, ready to go into political, political retirement, retirement to stand on right. the principles of the democracy. Yeah. I don't, I don't care, care about it. About it. Yeah. You know? And so, and so, so that's, that's the unfortunate thing. These people have uh, uh, yeah, power it up. Look, many of my mistakes in my life, we're born, we're born from, from ego, ego basis and pride basis. basis. Ultimately, Ultimately, when my, when my wife, wife probably hates Trump, Trump almost as much as Melania, Melania. I mean, you got to get Melania to do it. She's in the, in the, in the primary, primary position. position. But my, my wife, wife told me not, not to go to work for him. But I had him in my head. I grew up in a blue-collar family. I went to Tufts and Harvard. I built two successful businesses. And now I'm going to work for the American president. The fact that the American president was a sociopath I was, I was using, using cognitive, cognitive dissonance and hitting, hitting an override, override switch, switch because, because of, my of my pride and my, and my ego. ego. And so and I have so to own that for, for the rest of my life. life. And the other and thing, thing I have to own for the rest of my life, life. And, I and I think it's important for people, people to hear this, and hopefully there will be others that come around to this. I know General Kelly is there now, so is Jim Mattis, or friends of mine. I have to come to grips with the fact that I worked for somebody, and as a result of that, I contributed to a lot of pain in our society. I contributed to a person that was racially charging society, whether I'm a racist or not, is inconsequential. The fact was that we were accomplices of this, and we have to acknowledge that pain. We don't do that. In my opinion, it's almost, it's almost the way, the way like a drug addict has to turn to his family members and say, hey, you know what? My, my actions have caused a lot, a lot of pain, pain and I'm and sorry about it. it. And if we and don't, if we don't do, do that, that, we're not, 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 not going to heal. heal. And so what so happens, happens is you get your ego in there, you talk to somebody like General Kelly and say, well, I did it for country, I did it for this, I did it for that. Yeah, you did it for those things, we did contribute to this. And we needed, you know, I started speaking out right after the congressional midterms. 
but I need to have spoken out earlier than that, frankly. And I have to own that for the rest of my life. But, 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 you know, we got to get more people to own it. We got to get more people together on the side of the public and on the side of the democracy. Well, let me take that in that little time we have left and date stamp our talk today by saying this is the second day of the impeachment hearing. And let me just start, Anthony, by uh, I want to get everybody's thoughts about it. But if you had a secret ballot, what do you think the result would be? It would probably be 90-10 in the Senate. Uh, there's still yeah. 10 of those people that secretly, you know, they're, they would support him. Yeah. Uh, but I think that, you know, he's going to get acquitted. But I love what's going on, and I love the prosecution's narrative and the advocacy of the prosecution because they're laying out the facts, and normal people, good people, and there are more of us that are good than bad. And ultimately, the good people of the United States will realize how abnormal and how sick this is, uh, and, uh, and I, I'm very optimistic about that. So I love the fact that they're doing this and that we're in day two. Cynthia, your take on the impeachment. I agree. You know, I, I have to tell you that um, in the very beginning, right after the riot, uh, some Democrats started talking about a second impeachment. I was a bit skeptical uh, because I just thought uh, he's not going to be convicted and it gets in Joe Biden's way. Uh, but I've changed my mind. I think that um, the ability of the House impeachment managers to lay out the case, to lay out the facts before the American public is crucial. Um, he won't be convicted, uh, but I think that so many Americans will now completely understand his role in this. And I think that matters. Yeah. Um, and we won't get distracted by the quality of the legal representation. Uh, uh, Steve, um, you started us off. You created this book. So I'm going to let you have the last word on the impeachment and whether it helps your long range goal of getting people to um, think and communicate and look at facts. Very much so. I mean, we have to be storytellers. That's what uh, writers are. That's what journalists need to be. And that's what a good prosecutor is. Uh, I know Eric Swalwell, for example, uh, prides himself on telling a good story as a prosecutor. I know this team has done a very good job of presenting a narrative because in, in a way, that's what it is, is a battle of narratives. And um, we talked about courage, but a quality I would point to is imagination. And, you know, absolutely no one thinks that Mitch McConnell is sitting around wondering what his, uh, you know, Boy Scout leader would uh, suggest that he do as the right thing. Mitch McConnell is thinking about his own power and his own future political power. Well, what if Mitch McConnell at some point over the next few days makes the calculation that voting to convict Donald Trump and bringing along enough votes to do that, which Mitch McConnell knows about how to get votes in the Senate. If he really wanted to do that, he could get us there. So that's why I find it laughable to read repeated references to a preordained result 
when nobody even knows what Mitch McConnell is going to do. And I think the big problem, again, is the desire to appear to appear omniscient and to have it all figured out, which is opposed in Washington when people don't know things. Um, Roy, again, we're both baseball men. You know, uh, one thing about baseball is you go to the stadium and you don't know what's going to happen. Right. And, you know, politics is more like sports than people like to acknowledge. I enjoyed Anthony's football reference earlier. Yeah. And I, for one, think if we can all tell stories the way that the contributors, and I thank Anthony and Cynthia for being part of it, the 38 contributors in this book, Now What?, have all told compelling stories that bring alive issues in a way that I think makes them relatable and I think gives them a permanence that will be resonating. And if we can tell a story about an America that is appalled by the crimes of Donald Trump, that can have staying power, and it is a majority of the country. The New York Times, again, referred to something like narrowly. Uh, when you know Eric Bowler and others have been pounding away, the, the numbers are actually pretty strong. It, Donald, I mean, uh, Joe Biden's approval rating right now is significantly better than Donald Trump's ever was. The American people are behind this this new president, and they are again, they are in favor of impeaching Donald Trump. So right there, we've already won something. And you know what? I think we've got a few twists and turns. I think it's going to be a lively week. Maybe you'll have to put out um, volume two of your book in uh, 12 months from now. And everybody can, because it'd be, it'd be a good hindsight. Well, I want to thank all of you and each of you for, I think, what, you know, we may be just a drop of sand uh, on the beach, but conversations like this aggregate and hopefully people who have uh, received something to think about. Um, one kernel of thought builds on the next. And so we thank the Commonwealth Club for hosting this. And I thank you, Cynthia, Steve, and Anthony for such great participation. So uh, thank you to our audience. And our, this session of the Commonwealth Club is hereby adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 